Hello and a warm welcome to everyone. My name is Alina Rocha Menocal and I am a Principal Research Fellow in Politics and Governance at ODI. And I'm also the Director of the Thinking and Working Politically Community of Practice, which is hosted by the University of Birmingham. I am very happy to be chairing this panel today on engaging with politics towards smarter international support to revitalize democracy which will explore what more effective democracy assistance might look like. We know that democracy is under considerable stress in all corners of the world. And from a foreign policy and international development perspective, the question of how to reinvigorate the promise and value of democracy has become one of the most pressing challenges we confront today. But can the international community rise to the task? To date, standard approaches to support democracy have remained limited in considerable ways. Among other things, they have tended to rely on predetermined blueprints of change that focus on the form that democratic institutions might take without grappling with the underlying power and politics that give them substance and meaning. So what does more innovative and politically attuned democracy assistance look like? This is what we will explore in this webinar. And we have a stellar lineup of panelists to share their insights and ideas about how democracy support has evolved in different areas of engagement and what lessons emerge to enable more effective politically informed practice. Let me briefly walk you through the structure of the webinar so that you have a sense of what is coming. And I will also introduce our panelists in turn. So we will start with four speakers who will discuss examples of innovative, of innovative practice in the field, what makes them innovative, how they work on the ground, and what kinds, of act, what kinds of factors have enabled more or less effective democracy support and why. And as part of this, we will hear from Joseph Munyan Gabo, who is Uganda country representative for the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Then we will hear from Nick van der Jagt, who is Evaluation and Learning Advisor at the Netherlands Institute for Multiparty Democracy, or NDI. Next, we will hear from Claire Castillejo, who is Research Associate in Politics and Governance at ODI. And then we will hear from Andrei Rusanovsky, who is Deputy Country Director of NDI Moldova. We will then open uh, up the floor for, short, for a short round of questions and discussion with the audience. And after that, we will hear from two discussants who will reflect on what the speakers have said and, and, and respond from a donor perspective. So that will be Helena Juremalm, who is deputy head of the democracy unit at SIDA, and Laura Pavlovich, who is director, the deputy director for the Center for Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance at USAID. We will then have another short round of questions and discussion with the audience. And then I will invite Tom Carothers, who is Harvey V. Feinberg, Chair for Democracy Studies and Senior Vice President for, the, for, for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and one of the leading experts in this field, to provide some remarks for what this might all mean for the future of, of democracy support. By way of closing the webinar, I will ask our panelists to share a short takeaway from the discussion. So right, before I turn to our first speaker, I also want to emphasize that we very much welcome questions from the audience. 
And for this, you have a couple of options. You can either raise your hand and ask a question directly. And this is a relatively new feature that we're just trying out now. And if you want to raise a question, uh, to raise your, uh, if you want to raise your hand, we will enable your microphone uh, to be on uh, so you can ask your question. And then we would also briefly ask you to introduce, um, to give us your name and your institutional affiliation, if that is okay. Or you can also write your questions down in the designated Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. We will try, of course, to get to as many questions as we can, uh, but please also feel free to use the regular chat box uh, to share any thoughts or ideas that you may have. Um, and we encourage all of you to engage with that, with, with that uh, box of comments um, as, as we proceed. Right, without further ado, let me turn to Joseph. Um, and how I will conduct this will be through um, a, a set of interactive questions with him, and then I will move on to the to the uh, different speakers that I have introduced in turn. But Joseph, let me start with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the work you're leading in the WFD Uganda country office on brokering dialogue and facilitating spaces for engagement and collective action? across a variety of stakeholders. And in particular, could you tell us a little bit about how this work has evolved over the past few years and what makes it innovative or enables it to break away from more traditional, let's say, and um, more technical donor support um, and grapple with the politics more seriously? Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Alina, for um, inviting me. Uh, WFD uh, in Uganda works uh, to strengthen uh, the Parliament of Uganda, political parties, and civil society. We do this by largely identifying and working with champions uh, within these institutions to influence change or reform. And this is uh, uh, a departure from the traditional way uh, many INGOs have uh, done, you know, democracy support work because of again the evidence that has been adduced from research on how patronage and corruption have undermined the efforts of democracy assistance in Uganda for the last uh, 15, 20 years or so. So we realized that the deep state or the uh, informal operators within government and the private sector have a lot of influence in the direction of these organizations or even the general direction of development in Uganda. And therefore working directly with uh, democracy institutions has not yielded a lot of impact because the individuals that hold uh, offices or positions within these institutions not necessarily hold the power to influence change. So we have uh, focused on identifying uh, individuals within these institutions that are invested and interested in reforms. And we work with, with them to create or um, establish a network of champions. And once we support and give capacity to these champions, for example, within parliament, uh, whether it is within the accountability committees of parliament, whether it is identifying inclusion champions within parliament, we work with them to build their capacity 
one to recruit more champions, but also to influence change. And we realized in the last uh, three years that this has been very effective. If you look at the way um, some of the progressive bills have been championed by these groups of people and how, uh, for example, the scrutiny of government performance has improved in some ways. There may not be um, maybe um, significant change in the countering corruption, but at least the exposure of um, what is going on uh, through these groups that are already interested and invested in change itself. So that has been really our approach. But also we try to get them in the room with other like-minded uh, change agents and partners in a very informal uh, way where we get the buy-in and we get the consensus generated among them on what uh, change looks like, but also on what change is possible. And from that consensus, it is easy then for them with the information that we share with them to go out and actually advocate for these reforms. Thank you so much, Joseph. That's a lot of uh, a very um, um, useful information about sort of engaging with the real powers that be and bringing different stakeholders together. Could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of factors that have enabled WFD Uganda to work in this way and to be able to um, tackle the informal sources of power more explicitly? I think we have um, uh, realized over time that trust is very important in democracy assistance work. And therefore we invest a lot in uh, relationship building, both with the, uh, the institutions, but also within, with the individuals within institutions. Once trust is built, even co difficult conversations, you can have difficult conversations with the, within those uh, safe spaces with them. So once over time you build trust, it is easy to agree on the minimum that they can, they can offer, but also it takes away um, the other factors and interests like money. In, in the past, for example, uh, working with Parliament of Uganda or with the Electoral Commission or with political parties, your budget was more important than the issues or the reforms that need to happen. But once you build uh, confidence through this relationship building, and also you um, identify like-minded individuals and you are able to bring them in the same room, then they begin to share honestly, but also to trust that you will be responsible with the information and that we all need the same thing. Thank you so much, Joseph, for that emphasis on trust, which I think um, is a very consistent message across um, different areas of, of international um, development support. Could I ask you, in terms of, of, of building this trust, is there something in particular about the way that you relate to um, the main donors for, from WFD's perspective that enables you to actually spend the time to build that trust? And what kinds of implications would you say um, this kind of effort to build trust has on, on programming and how you relate uh, to your donors um, um, in this respect and sort of the challenges uh, around that. Thanks. I think we have uh, discovered that uh, 
it is very important that designing interventions must be inclusive. Whereas many times we engage experts who uh, uh, study and, and present very impressive reports and findings that inform the design of our programs. We have, as WFD, discovered that engaging the, the partners we are targeting in the design of these programs is very, very, very critical because it creates ownership and also legitimacy. And once they pick the issues themselves and we are able to see the power, which was not there in the, in, in, in the past, where you see the power that the, the, the issues, the direction of uh, the interventions are actually owned and championed by the partners themselves. We have discovered that that approach uh, has been most effective. And many times when we support, for example, uh, the Parliamentary Forum on Youth Affairs to push an issue because they are already invested in it. They are already members of that coalition. They are able to go two, three extra miles beyond the, the support or the funding that, that we give. And so for me, that inclusion all the way from understanding the issue to designing the program to owning the intervention is critical. Thank you so much, Joseph. I will now move on to, to our next uh, speaker, Nick, but, but let me uh, leave you with a thought um, on what you have said, because I'm wondering what it is about WFD's ways of working or perhaps funding models that enables you to engage in these ways that might be more open-ended. So maybe we can go back to that um, during the, the question period, but just for you to reflect. Now I'm gonna move on to Nick. Uh, Nick, tell us a little bit, please, about NIMD's work on multi-party dialogue and how it has evolved over the past few years. Um, really, how is this work innovative, especially in terms of engaging more seriously with, with the political dynamics at work and, and breaking the mold from more traditional uh, technical um, and democracy support work? Thank you. Thanks, Alina. That's, that's a whole range of questions. I'm going to try to remember to address all of them in, in my three minutes. But yeah, thank you for this this place in this panel, and and I'm really well uh, happy and honored to see so many colleagues from before uh, in this in this same uh, venue. Um, yeah, let me start by just explaining a little bit what NIMD, so Netherlands Institute for Multi-Party Democracy, does. So we are essentially uh, promoting peaceful, just, and inclusive democracies worldwide. Um, we have a global network with country offices and partner organizations. And we really work with the political sector in the country. So from aspiring politicians to political leaders, uh, both at the national and the local level. And one of our main interventions is indeed uh, multi-party dialogue. So strengthening capacities of political actors to engage in this dialogue, uh, but also training young and established leaders in democracy schools to be able to, to engage in dialogue. And we run about yeah, programs in around 20 countries throughout the world, mainly funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but not only. Um, on our political party dialogue, um, yeah, we, we, we get results from that work um, beyond just organizing the dialogue. So we, we, we look at really uh, trying to have different levels of results come from the dialogue, um, uh, which in terms of activities, um, we have a set of interventions really. So it's not just facilitating the actual meetings, but it's organizing retreats uh, for trust building between political actors. I think Joseph's point 
is one we would certainly underscore. Trust building, very important. We organize bilateral meetings uh, with political parties. Um, we train political and civic actors in dialogue skills. Um, we help organize uh, topical expert meetings and set agendas uh, for lobby and advocacy on certain democratic uh, reforms even. So there's a whole range of activities that we, we, we support under this topic of political dialogue. Um, and I think it is again important to, to emphasize that the first aim usually for us is to build trust between NIMD or our country office and then the target group and the political actors. And then the second aim would be to build trust between the dialogue participators themselves. And then thirdly, obviously, to provide logistical and technical and content support to these dialogues. Um, to address your question on, on what, what have we innovated, what has changed really for us, I think much more than in the past, our dialogue interventions have become more, more dynamic, more innovative. Um, um, if you look at where we started about five years ago, in terms of evaluating much better our dialogue platforms. Uh, we recently did a study uh, together with my colleague Violet Benneker called Just Talk, where we reviewed all the evaluation findings on our political dialogue over the last five years. So looking again at about 12 evaluation reports by external uh, evaluators, looking at what the success and failure factors are of our political dialogue work. And there we clearly see a main trend is that we have been moving as NIMD away from the traditional intervention of putting political parties in a formal dialogue platform. And we see across the years that that model actually uh, fails in a number of ways in a number of contexts. And uh, I think to mention now first in this first set of answers to your questions, particularly in contexts where we see significantly decreasing democratic space, but also where we see one party dominant regimes being very strong, we see that this formal platforms of political parties uh, actually stalls quite easily. And we need to innovate our approach um, uh, to find political ways of responding to that. Uh, is that a sufficient answer for now, Melina? Yeah, no, that's great, Nick. Thank you so much. And I am wondering if you may have sort of um, as part of the second question, because I am wondering um, a little bit just, uh, just as I was asking, um, Joseph, what kinds of factors have enabled NIMD to work in these more innovative and politically smart ways? But perhaps um, as you answer this question, you can sort of reflect a little bit on if you're moving away from the formal dialogues, um, yes. what, yeah. does that, what does that look like in actual practice and how does that enable you to get more traction on the politics? And then maybe as part of that answer the question about what kinds of factors yeah, sure. enable NIMD to work in that way. Thanks. Yeah, so we've seen innovations on the types of dialogue interventions in a number of countries. Um, and actually we, we now, from that study I mentioned, are able to identify five signature dialogue interventions. And one is the sort of classical political party dialogue that we still do in, in at least one country, which is actually Uganda with iPod. So I'd be keen to hear Joseph's perspective on how that uh, platform functions in, in Uganda. But we have a more broader political actor dialogue, which doesn't limit it to a formal platform uh, for political parties in parliament, but includes parliamentarians, a range of political actors, including, for example, electoral management bodies around topical issues. So it becomes much more thematic. 
Um, we also much more do multi-stakeholder dialogues, which really involve civil society organizations. So partly this is because also of our donor being more interested in working with civil society as a way of increasing democratic space. But we still continue to engage civil society actors with political parties uh, in the multi-stakeholder forum. We see in a number of countries, for example, especially when democratic space is reduced, uh, that informal dialogues become more common. So when there is no formal affiliation with an agenda or with people's uh, organizations or parties, uh, but again, uh, on topical issues, uh, critical junctures, in a very informal setting, uh, political party members, secretary generals would come outside of their normal uh, uh, yeah, engagement areas and talk about issues very confidentially. And then finally, we much more support existing national state-led dialogues, for example, in the case of Ethiopia, uh, where we support uh, processes there. Um, yeah, so that's basically different types. Um, and we do see that there are results there. And I want to go back to the point Joseph made about trust building, because we still struggle to see whether the trust building is a mechanism or a goal in itself. When we look at uh, what our evaluations tell us, uh, one of the sort of lowest yeah, reached results or outcomes are in the area of trust building between representatives of different parties. Um, and also listening, uh, having them listen to, to perspectives and then adopting code of conduct. So the, these are the easiest change. We also do see that there is uh, sort of, when we're there for a long time and our impartiality is well accepted, it's coming to your factors, um, joint statements and policies, uh, even around the democratic reforms and legislation is possible in our dialogues, in our facilitated dialogues. So it really has to do with, um, yeah, is the trust there? So that's an important factor trust in us as facilitators, but also can we generate trust between participants in the political dialogue? And then the principle of impartiality remains one of the most important preconditions uh, for our program success. So our strong reputation as an impartial party allows us to really develop dialogue interventions and innovate that I think would not be possible if that impartiality hasn't been accepted and, and, and recognized by participants to the dialogue. Um, there's a number of very practical factors, for example, the role of our partner staff and our local knowledge or our teams in country are, are all led by uh, national experts and, and, and uh, political savvy individuals, uh, which is really important. So this issue of local ownership also really strengthens the, the success of our, of our dialogue interventions. Um, I can name a few more, but we, we might come to them uh, again, long term engagement with the donor allowing for long-term engagement. Many of our programs actually run for five years and are allowed to be very adaptive, very flexible even in terms of shifting budget lines, closing programs, uh, starting differently with uh, actors, different actors. Um, so risk-taking, uh, capacity of colleagues to take these risks. Those are some of the more operational, if you will, factors that really uh, determine whether dialogues are successful. Um, it helps that we have a donor who is very patient. Um, the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, subscribes to some of our principles and the principles of thinking and working politically, uh, but we are continuously engaging with them around uh, different monitoring approaches, having more patience in terms of seeing outcome results and uh, yeah, allowing for more creative uh, results measurement approaches, such as outcome harvesting and contribution analysis, so that effectiveness becomes 
less strictly formulated as reaching certain indicators and targets. Thank you, Nick. That's really good um, and, and very relevant to, to this discussion here. Uh, just in one minute, <laughs> I'm gonna blend a couple of questions into one, but you know, you're talking about um, the, the Netherlands as a donor that has sort of, is coming along the journey with you. Could you tell us a little bit about how that has evolved over time and what key challenges you see still uh, inhibiting this kind of accompaniment? Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point, Alina, because it didn't happen over time, obviously. And um, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands does, of course, work with, with uh, policy frameworks in which our programs have to fit. And they do uh, need to relate to their uh, parliament and show results in terms of indicators. So this, this sort of what we would call a bit of old school results focus is, is still there. Uh, but with the, the parts of the ministry that support us, so the, the Directorate for Stability and the Humanitarian Affairs, there's been much more involvement in, in, in uh, understanding our way of working. And uh, just through regular, uh, almost yeah, twice a year policy dialogues with our counterparts in the ministry, we're able to solve issues around, do you continue in Sudan or not? And then if not, where does the money go? And if Myanmar is stuck, uh, what do we do? So we engage with them um, uh, yeah, regularly on these types of, of uh, uh, shifts that we need to make or adaptations that we have to do. Um, so yeah, I think there is quite a bit of progress there. Um, but obviously we also see still pressure within the ministry from other parts, particularly from the uh, colleagues there who are uh, concerned about risks, uh, financial risks, reputation risks, that they do still put pressure back on us on working with indicators, meeting targets, um, and, and uh, being quick to report underspending and reallocation needs. Thank you very much, Nick. That, uh, Nick. That's quite comprehensive, and I think it sort of shows the balancing act that is needed um, in terms of, of enabling this kind of work, but also um, um, reporting upwards and, and giving donors the confidence that, uh, that they need to, um, that, that the work is, is going well. So that's very useful. Um, let me move um, to Claire now, um, and then we can um, hopefully get some more questions in. But Claire, um, tell us a little bit uh, from your experience um, about how donor support in relation to women's political participation and empowerment has evolved over the past few years. Are there examples of efforts that seek to break away from this more traditional technical mold and engage more thoroughly and seriously with politics? And what does that kind of support look like? What makes it innovative? Thank you. Thanks, Selena. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a there's a small but growing body of kind of politically more politically informed work on on women's political empowerment, which is building on a kind of growing evidence base. And I mean, when I look across that kind of body, I think, you know, qu quite a few of these initiatives, they're purposeful, they're funders and implementers getting together and deciding that they want to design programs that work with kind of local political realities. But a lot of this work as well is much more ad hoc, where we've got really, you know, staff within a political, uh, within a particular program who are kind of identifying, responding to kind of changing political context or emerging windows of opportunity. And we're not, we don't know that much about what's happening in terms of that ad hoc work because it's not being captured, it's not being documented and kind of added into the evidence base. So 
yeah, I mean, when I look across these kinds of programs, I think, you know, I mean, politically smart kind of programming and women's political empowerment is very diverse, but we can see some key features across across these different types of programs. And for example, most, most of them will tend to be based on an analysis of how gendered power dynamics relate to kind of wider power dynamics and what this means in terms of, kind of entry points and opportunities for advancing women's political empowerment. They tend to involve a stronger focus on addressing underlying drivers of women's political exclusion rather than kind of symptoms of it. Um, and they very much tend to be based on a recognition that women activists are already working in politically smart ways in many different spaces and across many kind of different thematics, and that the role of international actors should therefore be to kind of support and amplify this, this work by women's activists. And also what we see with these types of programmes is that they're engaging with a wider range of stakeholders beyond the kind of normal stakeholders that, that gender equality programming or women's political participation programming would generally engage with. Um, and I've been trying to think of an example to give you because to kind of put into, you know, to give something concrete to, to this rather broad analysis. And one that I was thinking might be useful to talk about was is the UN fund, the UN Women Fund for Gender Equality. So this is a fund which basically provides grants to women's organizations to kind of as advocates of change so that they can be catalysts of change. And some of it's been, been documented by the DLP program and, and it's, I've worked with it in other ways. And, and when you look at the way that this fund has operated, it's really tried to operate in quite a kind of politically informed way by doing certain things. So first of all, working, supporting women-led organizations to advance their own goals and kind of providing support right from the developing of the theory of change and strategies through implementation, providing ongoing monitoring, support for adaptation where needed, extra capacity strengthening where needed. And there's been a strong focus within these grants on supporting locally-led knowledge generation. So really, kind of recognizing that that knowledge that's generated by women and their partners on the ground is going to be more relevant it's going to be more context specific there'll be greater ownership of the findings and the conclusions and hence kind of more sustainability um, again a focus across these grants on building alliances on kind of around specific gender equality issues with power brokers who wouldn't necessarily be the normal ad allies for gender equality work, kind of identifying common interests and developing shared ownership of certain issues that these women's organizations are trying to take forward. Also a strong focus on anticipating resistance, kind of framing issues in ways that, that neutralize opposition or, or even bring on board in some cases, potential kind of opponents to some of the goals that these women's organizations are trying to, are trying to advance. And another focus has been kind of facilitating the, the grantees that have received the grants from you and women to access power holders or kind of government officials and so on that they wouldn't usually have access to. So really helping them to kind of broaden their coalitions, build alliances and so on. And I mean, in terms of the kind of lens that this, that has been used for, for this fund and for these grants, it's very much an intersectional lens. So it's really involved kind of approaching the issues that are being supported, not just in terms of the lens of gender, but in terms of class, ethnicity, particular forms of marginalization and so on. And particularly interesting, I think within this fund was also the, the focus on supporting young women leaders and kind of investing in the future of the women's movement. So, I mean, I'm giving this as an example, but really what I'm talking about is a kind of an overall approach to engage with women's organizations to support them and their agendas to advance women's political participation by engaging with a much broader set of processes and a broader set of actors. 
Thank you very much, Claire. That's also very comprehensive, and I think it illustrates some of the things that have also been raised by, by the other speakers. Can I perhaps meld a couple of questions that I had for you into one? Yeah. If you were looking at this example of you and women, what do you think enabled you and women or has enabled you and women to work in these ways? Um, and, and what might that sort of suggest um, in terms of implications for programming and for uh, the kinds of lessons uh, that we need to, to take into account moving forward in this field? I mean, I don't know if I can speak specifically to what enabled you and women to work in these ways in this particular, in this particular fund. But I mean, interestingly, uh, a couple of years ago, ODI, ODI and WFD, we held uh, a meeting where we brought together practitioners and funders working on gender equality to talk about this actual question about what is it that enables and constrains us to work in more politically informed ways to advance gender equality agendas. And so perhaps I can share some of the, 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 the kind of ideas that came out of that because I think that they apply probably to, you know, certainly this UN Women work and to others. But, I mean, what comes out very clearly, I think, is, is the broader policy environment is very important. So where gender equality is really central to an organization's mandate, those organizations are much more likely to, of course, dedicate resources to working on women's political empowerment, but also to frame these questions in a much more explicitly political way and kind of provide staff with the, with the permission and the capacity to work, go out and work in political ways on these issues. Um, what we also came out very strongly was that where there's, you know, obviously where the organizational incentive frameworks have, and kind of processes, capacities have been structured or have been rethought in ways that enable kind of political and adaptive ways of working, that is absolutely critical and kind of the leadership and also the staff capacity, not just at headquarters, but on the ground comes out as a very important factor in enabling this kind of, this, these ways of working. And likewise, where decision-making is, is decentralized and some of the, the kind of people that we, we talked this through in this workshop, we're talking about where country offices control their own funds, you know, there may be more willingness to kind of trial these types of ways of working because they can see on the ground the need to kind of engage in specific political processes or take advantage of particular kind of windows of opportunity. And actually some, some very interesting points came out in terms of the context that enabled this type of working. One was that organizations might be more willing to work in these ways or to experiment with more politically informed approaches to gender in very complex contexts, because it's easy to admit that there's no clear solution and that funding modalities might anyway be more flexible because of the nature of the complexity, perhaps in very fragile contexts. And likewise, in contexts where donor funding is marginal or where, the or where the funding of this particular actor is marginal, it also seemed to be more likely that organizations would use the funding for experimentation rather than kind of expecting it to facilitate major change. So again, more flexibility to work in perhaps more politically informed ways. Great, thank you so much, Claire. Sorry, I couldn't find the unmute button there. Um, let me move on to Andrei, who will also be talking to us about some of the innovative work that he has been leading um, at NDI in Moldova um, on mayor's dialogues. Um, Andrei, could you tell us a little bit about how this work came about and what makes it different and innovative, especially once again, in relation to engaging more seriously with the political dynamics at work? Thank you so much. Hello, Hello and thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Um, it's a very, very interesting uh, conversation, of course, and very easy questions to answer, right? Uh, you know, democracy and uh, how, how to be practical and innovative about it. Uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, we were faced with quite a few frustrations uh, when we initially designed this program. Uh, frustrations to do with, you know, working for a long time with uh, politics, uh, with politicians, with political parties, who in Moldova at that time, let's say 10, 15 years ago, sort of knew what they had to do because they've been told by various international organizations and they kind of were told by, you know, political consultants from time to time and others what needs to happen. But in reality, things were not happening. And this is what uh, was frustrating. And, you know, we did, of course, uh, um, you know, have uh, some you know trainings of our own that would last you know for two days, uh, and would have you know 30, 40 people around, maybe once or twice a year, the same group. But at the same time, we knew that people would come to the training, and would go, would say, would not, and you know we would feel good that we kind of got through to them, and they realized that they have to go door to door, they have to deliver leaflets, they have to talk to people, they have to get out, and then nothing happens. They would go home and things wouldn't really uh, be going any further. At least they were talking the lingo, basically, and they were using the words door to door and so on, but in reality, things didn't really move. And you know, when we were looking at the democratic deficit, we said, well, there is a gap. You know, there is a gap between uh, residents, between voters, between citizens and you know the, those people who make decisions. Of course, you know the causes of that uh, are, are you know maybe historic, maybe uh, very deep, uh, at this, or you know cultural even. But at the same time, you know we wanted to do something about this, and actually we thought that no, we have to pretty much hold the hand of the political practitioners and be with them all you know all the uh, way uh, you know uh, each step of the way. Uh, and, and actually, this is how the program came about. You know, we call it a 10-step plan because it has, you know, 10 uh, very concrete uh, steps that uh, our partners do with us. But in reality, it focuses around three different things. Uh, but before I go there, I would like to say that, uh, you know, who are, the, who are our partners? Our partners are mayors. Uh, mayors uh, in Moldova are some of the few, if not the only, directly elected politicians, well, up until recently, uh, directly elected politicians and uh, who have a very clear mandate, who you know have you know very concrete set of people who look to them uh, for solutions and for answers, and those mayors, you know, have uh, uh, an extremely uh, you know difficult task to deliver on a lot of uh, on a lot of uh, uh, priorities and local needs. Uh, but at the same time, it's a great opportunity because this is where the citizens actually may have their only. Uh, interaction with a politician. So this is where democracy is practiced. And, you know, we thought that this is exactly the point, the level at which we, we have to enter the political uh, um, equation, so to say, and, you know, where we can actually play both with the supply and the demand, and we can work, uh, you know, across a, a large scale. You know, we basically, one of the first steps is to present this program, this method of systematic outreach uh, that involves door-to-door uh, identification of priorities, then, you know, there is a door-to-door -door response by mayors to each door saying, this is what we heard from you. You know, you told us that these are the important things that we, that you care about. So we have to do something about this, even though the mayors will say, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about the water. It's an ex expensive project. You know, I don't have the money. I don't have the power. And, you know, 10 reasons why they wouldn't be able to do this. But actually, you know, and the philosophy is such that we say, well, 
you can't not talk about it. You cannot talk about a priority that people feel because, you know, then they say that you are ignoring them. And, you know, actually our focus groups show the same thing. People said, we just want to know what's happening. We don't want immediate solutions. People are not naive. They know that things take uh, time. So actually, you know, what the program does is helps the mayors, the politicians at the local level to identify issues to go back to the voters and say, this is what I'm going to do about this. I might not succeed immediately, but, you know, at least I will identify what has been done before, you know, what are the possibilities, what is the, you know, technical solution, and I'm telling you this, and then report results. Inevitably, there are results. And, you know, this is what sold it, uh, I think, initially to USA and, and, and the donors. And I think it was a great way of, you know, having some quick results because, yes, democracy takes a long time. And our view in this is that, well, you know, if, if people see some delivery at the local level, they'll transfer the same expectations at the at a different level. You know, the, at the level of uh, you know Ryan councillors, uh, at the level of uh, uh, MPs, at the level of the president, the you know the prime minister, the, the ministers, and so on. So you know, the culture of expectations changes. Uh, and you know, what sold it, I, I think, was that actually you know very quickly, because the dialogue is there. Because actually, you know the mayors that take part are almost trapped uh, in, a, in a good way. They're almost trapped in, the, in this uh, interaction with voters where they actually promised them something that now they have to deliver something. So the efforts are made. They're forced into you know, this action mode, problem solving mode uh, on the priorities of the public. You know, what, what better uh, you know, expression of, of democracy, the priorities of the public become the priority of the mayor, of the elected official. Uh, and you know, inevitably things change, things uh, improve, uh, problems are solved, you know, from playgrounds that are built with, you know, local money or with, you know, some donations or whatever, to major infrastructure projects, you know, sewage systems that are the most expensive infrastructure projects, you know, in Moldova, at least, you know, roads, uh, water supply, gas, you know, any kind of local issues that would seem almost impossible to solve, uh, you know, if you look at it from a, from a mayor's perspective with very limited resources, but you know, it, it seems like this concentration of um, you know of of um, kind of the public and the effort from the mayor convinces donors, convinces not just the you know the budgetary uh, donors, but also the extra budgetary donors and the the population that are willing to support uh, the effort. So I know I will talk too much, so I'll, uh, I'll stop here for now. Andre, thank you very much for that. Also very comprehensive and, and very good example. Um, you mentioned a couple of times the need to convince uh, the donors and we have uh, USAID here represented. Can you tell us a little, bit, uh, a little bit about what that means? What did you have to convince them of? And perhaps maybe you can respond this by sort of addressing how this way of, of working with this mayor's dialogue is different from the more traditional kind of work that NDI does. It's extremely labor intensive. And I think this is one of the things that is, uh, I think, you know, we were lucky to, to have the flexibility of donors, of course. And this is something that uh, I think is, is a key flexibility, but also the long-term long view. I know other panelists have, have mentioned this, the long-term view, uh, the investment in the process. And I think it's, um, you know, it's extremely um, heartwarming to see how, how you know uh, things actually change in the democratic development field? I would say, and you know what what we were able to do is iterate, and uh, you know sometimes fail. And I think that's a very very important point that 
rarely is mentioned in uh, development because you know we have to spend you know taxpayers' money efficiently, right? But we also need to learn. And in de democratic development, there are no huge budgets for R and D, right? Like in the in the industry. So you know we have to learn by doing. We have to learn by failing very often. But actually, we have to acknowledge and learn the lessons from that. And I think you know very often. And again, I'm exaggerating here a little bit, but very often you have to drop. Uh, the participants, you know, that's anathema to sometimes to, uh, you know, to, to donors and to development organizations, you know, you can't not work with a beneficiary. Uh, but I think it's very important not to work with someone who is not showing, uh, you know, democratic values, who is, you know, is given all the tools, all the, you know, knowledge, all the skills and, and, and resources, and who doesn't necessarily want to do it, want to use it. So I think that's a, that's a very clear example of, you know, of working with those who believe in democratic principles. And, you know, that's the nature of the program. It's self-selecting. And I think these are all very radical ideas, you know, so to say, you know, these are, these are not the standard kind of uh, conservative interventions. Well, I don't know whether I should say conservative in a uh, democratic development, uh, you know, kind of context, because, you know, we don't have that much experience in that you know, as, you know, as humanity. So we need to, you know, very often, um, in, innovate on the spot sometimes. But I think, you know, in some ways, this innovation that we're talking about, it's, you know, it's a very simple program. And sometimes you need to convince the donors that a simple program is what is needed. It's, you know, it's teaching beneficiaries how to find, solve, and report back to, uh, to residents uh, on, on issues. And it's taking into account their political um, kind of uh, situation because they're all elected officials. But this system helps, you know, it helps them maintain a dialogue between elections. It, it helps them build political will, political, sorry, goodwill of the, of the residents. And that delivers at elections, you know, people get, uh, uh, you know, these mayors learn by doing, but they're also the basis for, you know, further development, for party building, for, you know, for any other kind of higher level democratic development that needs this very simple step. At the very bottom, at the grassroots, you know, political activists who go door to door, who get out of their offices, and who talk to the voters at, on their, you know, on their turf, on their territory, uh, and are not afraid to talk about, you know, difficulties, obstacles. So this honesty and transparency is is what is building the trust, and I think you know that has been the the theme here. But I think you know this trust between mayors and the residents you know, is what makes the mayors come back to us and say, you know, guys, we need your help, you know. And when we tell them, uh, initially, when we tell them, you know, this is, this is the program, this is the method, this is what we want to do with you, take it to live it. We don't have to work with you. You know, if you want it, we can try. If you don't, you know, it's okay. We have, other, we have 900 mayors to go to. You know, luckily, Moldova is a small country, but also has quite a few mayors. So, uh, I mean, actually, just to give you the scale, and I know it's... Uh, uh, I've been over time, but yeah. Andre, yes, sorry, <laughs> I may have to, I may have to stop you right there. And I, I'm sorry because you're mid flow, and I know that you're very passionate about this. But you have shared a very important points with us here. Um, and we're going to hopefully have a few minutes now to um address questions that we may have from the audience. So um, I think the way that this works is that you would have to raise your hand. Uh, so that we can identify you and then we can open up your microphone if you want to speak directly or you can use the Q&A um, function. And I see that there's some questions there. 
um, that that uh, come to mind. So let me just read you what I have here. And also um, I have some uh, questions myself, but let me start with this. Uh, I think we have five questions. It says uh, from Helene Froyen from uh, NIMD, what kinds of additional actions can be taken to ensure an enabling environment for democracy support? Do specific sanctions or high level involvement support to, uh, of the international community help? That's one. Uh, there's a question from Peter Vaz for Nick. What are some innovative approaches you have used in one party regimes? And I think maybe perhaps uh, Joseph can also comment on that. Um, and can you provide uh, a practical example? And I think um, Joseph also might be able to, to comment on that. Uh, from Nadine Mild, um, she, uh, she's asking, both Nick and Joseph mentioned their move away from, more, from formal settings and the importance of informal behind the scenes safe spaces for trust building. To what extent may this approach also clash with the transparency necessary in the fight against corruption and for public acceptance? So that's um, uh, dealing a little bit with the uh, tensions and the balancing act that we were talking about. So um, that is one round of questions. So maybe if um, I can invite the different speakers um, uh, to address them, maybe we can go in reverse order and I can start with you, Andre. Um, if any of these uh, strike your fancy, if you would like to address them. So is it back to me? Yes. Uh, I So, which question should I answer? Uh, well, I think there were some questions that were directed to Nick and to and 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 to Joseph that are so all relevant for you. But I think yeah. um, there's this issue of sort of uh, how you. Well, I I think the the balancing act between um, different needs and priorities um, might be might be a really important one, um, but also you know, how, how you do informal, how, how you address informal power structures. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, uh, you know, in, in some ways, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a natural um, kind of um, effect of, of engaging directly uh, with mayors and with, you know, with uh, kind of uh, getting very hands-on with them is that generally, you know, the, you know, the informal, um, you know, balancing of, uh, of uh, uh, political um, um, kind of, uh, situ you know, political situation and also the, you know, the various trust building activities. I think, you know, it's uh, basically, you know, if you work with them on a regular basis and actually sometimes, uh, you know, the, the politics of things is secondary because, uh, you know, you tell them, well, politics will be at elections, but before elections, you need to be building the you know the relationship with with the voters on a regular basis and you know uh you know from a technical point of view this is a very comfortable stance for a democracy development uh, practitioner i would say because you know you definitely it's you know you keep in mind you actually remind them about their political role very often at every training and the trainings are you know every two weeks or every three weeks you know, for, for an hour. So it's, it's kind of a guided practice type of uh, methodology. And you remind them, you know, why are you doing this? You're doing this for, of course, the good of the people, but also don't forget, you, you need to get reelected in two years and three years and, you know, two and a half years. Uh, and and this, this idea of reelection 
but also that don't just remember about voters in the last two weeks uh, before the election. And, you know, suddenly then, you know, panic, panic, let's, uh, let's talk about what we do. Because the mayors would say, well, you know, my acts should uh, speak for myself. But in reality, it's about communication. It's about engaging with people on a regular basis. But it's also giving the voters the opportunity to shape local policies, to shape uh, local uh, interventions. And I think this is the key in our program. And I think this is the most important element, uh, you know, giving the opportunity for feedback at every step, uh, at every step. And it's, you know, it's a constant theme. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to move to, oh, Nick, you have your hand up. Shall I address the, the two questions that were addressed to, to me, at least more, more specifically on, on yes. what do you do in one party dominant regimes? And then the other one on what does engaging in informal dialogue mean for transparency concerns and engagement with citizens? And maybe Joseph can add on that second one. On the first one, I think um, we, we have a, the case of, of our program in, in Mali, which, which used to be what, what I've called one of those typical NIMD platform approaches where all the political parties in parliament uh, constituted a center for inter-party dialogue. Um, and throughout, uh, I would say about four years ago, we, we, we noticed that that platform was, was not moving on any substantive issues, uh, particularly not around uh, responding to the increasing threats coming from the, uh, the security situation in most of the country. Um, and we, we innovated in a sense, uh, we, we, we took a major decision to stop working with that platform and to engage. And this is where I think Andre's story is interesting, much more at the local level, engaging citizens in dialogue with the communes. So issues pertaining particularly to young people in Bamako's uh, uh, bigger, bigger urban dense, uh, density areas. Um, and that became a different type of dialogue between uh, municipal leaders and, and uh, citizens, which uh, immediately addressed security concerns, but also basic infrastructure issues and employment, obviously. And, and which was much more uh, yeah, legitimate than engaging in discussions between small political parties around uh, nitty gritty issues about managing processes of dialogue, but not engaging with the real issues with the main party on, on the security threats uh, and the governance crisis in, in Mali. So that was a major innovation for us. Mm. And it's, it's, it's continuing also in other programs. Another example could be from, from Mozambique where um, our party, uh, our, inter, our partner, uh, Mozambique Institute for Multi-Party Dialogue has actually moved away from trying to engage uh, the main parties on uh, democratic reform issues, but has gone for um, using their contacts with the parties around elections and um, having uh, sort of, yeah, I would call them crisis rooms populated by politicians, by parliamentarians and citizens around electoral incidents, for example, managing that, engaging in dialogue and solving uh, electoral issues uh, when, when, when that becomes relevant. Another uh, innovation has been also in Mozambique to engage in regional parliaments and have dialogue on improving oversight over natural resource management. So going for a thematic approach yes. that is uh, much, much less constrained by, by power play by a dominant party. So those are just two examples. And the other question, I think very cool on what does it mean if, if you support informal dialogue, do you not undermine transparency and, and um, yeah, increase distrust of citizens, at least in these processes of political dialogue? I think this is a risk. And I think this, this does happen. But also in the countries where we do have informal dialogue, 
um, it's still um, parallel to a more open dialogue that 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 receives press attention and is talked about. Um, another part of my answer would be: this is politics, so you're not going to evade informal uh, discussions between politicians. That's just part of of, of politics. That's a very good point, Nick. And maybe I can move to Joseph because um, uh, there's probably some lessons there from, from Uganda. Thank you. I think um, on the first uh, question uh, on um, safe spaces and informal conversations, we have discovered that, for example, once you create these informal spaces uh, where politicians, civil society actors, and um, uh, all, you know, power holders or office bearers come in together, there is more honesty, there is free sharing of fears. I can give you an example. Recently, we were supporting a process for the amendment of the, the one of the laws, the Succession Amendment Act, and it had stalled for a long time because of the resistance, especially from the conservatives in the religious leaders, conservatives in, in, in parliament. But when we brought them together and asked that we will not have the media in that space and people are free, we will not even record uh, what is going on. We were able to establish the real fears that the conservatives had about the law and were able to give the opportunity to civil society activists and women champions in parliament to actually educate and, and, and help to share information with their male and conservative counterparts. Two weeks later, the bill was actually passed with limited resistance and the process was later transparent. So sometimes to generate consensus, if you do not want politicians to play to the gallery, you may actually need these spaces. And, and our, our focus is really change, not to, uh, you know, to do the theater with the media. And so, whereas we know that there's a risk of um, uh, hiding, not hiding, but keeping some information in closed doors, the ultimate end is actually for the good of the people. And then on the second question about, uh, uh, one party regimes and democracy for young. I'll give you an example that in Uganda, yes, we are a multi-party democracy, but citizens no longer have trust in their political parties as vehicles of change. And this we have seen as a fact from the last two elections. And so, whereas uh, many INGOs have been focused on strengthening and building the uh, systems and infrastructure of the traditional political parties, many young people have learned how to work the parties, how to work the system, work within and play uh, to champion their own cause without necessarily being subjected to uh, oppressive and sometimes exclusionary processes within the parties. And so understanding that even with um, uh, a dispensation, a multi-party dispensation uh, that is legal. You can have a large section of the population sidelines or left behind. And therefore it is important that us who are involved in democracy support, we understand these dynamics and find ways of working with these change agents 
within institutions and organizations that are focused on democracy development. Thank you very much for that, Joseph. Also, um, very sobering reminder of, of the politics at work. Um, Claire, do you want to come in at this uh, juncture? Yeah, let me just say something on the, quickly on the first question was around enabling actions that can be taken for democracy support. And I'm going to speak specifically to support for women's political participation, because that's where my work is focused. Um, and I just wanted to say that, I mean, I think that one enabling action that is very important is in terms of addressing the multiple drivers of women's political exclusion. And we know that, you know, the typical approach to supporting women's political participation is very much focused on kind of training women in political skills and promoting their inclusion within political institutions. But we've also seen that that's not really enough in terms of kind of supporting women to really have political influence and so on. And so what I wanted to point out was that, you know, we know that, that there's a range of kind of social norms, factors, economic factors, and so on that prevent women from participating participating in politics at all levels. And I think one important way of creating more enabling environment is working across the interconnections of those different kind of political, economic and social drivers of exclusion to, to promote women's political empowerment across different areas and across multiple levels. And just in terms of what, what that involves, I mean, that involves, of course, a strong analysis of how these kind of different factors relate to each other, uh, a gendered political economy analysis, if you like. And, it also requires those working specifically on women's political empowerment to go beyond their normal thematic silos, to connect with work in other areas and connect to actors working in other areas, to kind of link up and take advantage of the multiple spaces in which um, it's possible to support women's political empowerment through different types of reform processes. Thank you so much, Claire. That's also very, um, very useful for this discussion. I know that Neil Gandhi is waiting to ask a question. So maybe um, can we can we enable him to ask the question, but hold the answer for now, but just that, so that we hear it. And as part of enabling him to do that, I also want to raise a comment that uh, Jennifer Swift Morgan has made about what makes dialogue formal versus informal, which is something that maybe we can consider in the second round. So Neil, over to you, hope you can speak. If you're empowered by the powers of being, there we go. Ah, well, so maybe Neil is not there. Okay, so let me move swiftly right along because um, we do have um, a full set of other speakers to hear from. So I want to move on to uh, um, our discussants who, who will be reflecting on some of what we have been hearing uh, from their perspective, um, working with some of the leading uh, donor organizations working on democracy support. So let me turn to you, Helena. Um, from your perspective, how has the field of democracy support evolved over the past 10 years in ways that enable these efforts to be better grounded in context contextual realities and tailored accordingly? Uh, thank you, Alina, for a very pertinent question, and thanks for inviting me. Um, maybe I'll sound a bit pessimistic, but uh, I don't intend to. But I think the field has really changed tremendously in the last uh, 10 years, since I started uh, 20 years ago, uh, mainly like on two levels. The first one being, I think we are past talking shrinking democratic space. We should really talk about autocratization, because by now 70% of the world population live 
in auto, under autocratic governments and only 13% of the global population live like in full-scale democracies. So I think if we rather look at what's actually happening, I think that will give us better insights into what we can actually do. And, and some of the sort of top declining indicators uh, 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 illustrating this trend uh, really affect our partners, such as CSO repression, uh, journalists and media being under threat, uh, sort of the whole area of freedom of expression and opinion building uh, and freedom of academic expression, which I think maybe is not that known to people, but that is seriously under threat and cultural expression. And last but not least, the autonomy of election management bodies, sort of, and those declining trends really speak to the realities of the partners we work with. So that's the fundamental, the first fundamental change, increasing autocratization. Uh, the second trend I'd like to mention is that, uh, of course, this affects the Western world too. So there are fewer mm -hmm. like-minded uh, bilateral governments uh, that truly openly are very committed to uh, democracy and human rights within development cooperation. Uh, I think there's the situation is a little bit better today than compared to a few years ago, but definitely there are fewer governments uh, amongst the donor community that prioritize uh, support mm. to, to democracy. Thank you, Helena. And I suppose SIDA uh, has been a, 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 a good friend of democracy support for, for decades and remains one. So that's, that's uh, encouraging in that way. Um, let me turn the focus specifically on SIDA. And uh, obviously, as I said, SIDA has been a leading um, actor in supporting democracy but also has been a pioneer in undertaking power analysis um, and, and, and the like um, from about two decades ago. So how would you say that ways of working have changed within CIDA in ways that are sort of in line with thinking and working politically, let's say, and in line with enabling more effective, responsive and locally led democracy support? What does that change look like? Sure. Um, no, I completely agree with you that we are lucky in the sense that uh, that democracy and rights have clearly been prioritised. Like for the last, I, I, I think almost since the started, um, and currently we work uh, under sort of the supportive umbrella of the government with with its drive for democracy, which is more of a foreign policy initiative. But that gives support to the work we do on development cooperation, of course. Um, let me just say that CEDA is a funder. It's not a designer and implementer program. So let's make us stand apart a little bit from some of the other uh, uh, colleagues on the, on the panel. Um, and since there are so few of us, uh, few government agencies prioritizing democracy and uh, human rights, uh, what we do really makes a difference because unless we and other fellow like-minded donor governments speak out for, let's say, uh, political civil rights of the LBTIQ community or people with disabilities, maybe those voices won't be heard at all. So what we do, we have a really strong sense of that what we do really matters. Um, just moving into answering your uh, particular question, um, I think one critical argument is that aid modalities really matter. Uh, mm. And that's something that the panel uh, talked about. Uh, we try to increasingly provide core support in very flexible ways and long-term. And we actually, and this might sound like a surprise maybe to uh, some people that we don't have like a requirement for a particular results 
matrix. All we ask for is that whatever we're going to fund needs to have objectives. The partner needs to be able to track progress, but they can do that and document that in any which way they see fit. And we think that is really important to provide the flexibility that comes with thinking and working politically. And since we don't design the programs, our main role is really to facilitate uh, the ability of partners to thinking and working politically. And by doing that through more flexible uh, aid modalities. Um, let me see what else I wanted to say. Uh, another aspect is sort of, sort of to localize support to civil society uh, in partner countries rather than only I'm not saying that we should not work with international NGOs, but we can, to increasing extent, and we're trying to do that, uh, find locally sort of owned umbrella uh, groups that could then uh, transfer the funds to smallish uh, NGOs or um, social movements or interest groups that uh, sort of beyond uh, our reach a little bit. Um, I would also like to add that when it comes to uh, substance, we have actually... Um, and as I mentioned, that we actually work with the political party foundations and they mm. in turn support political parties directly. And that's a bit unusual. Uh, some of them work through sister to sister party support. Some of them even transfer funds to other political parties. Um, it's a lot to say about that, but I have brief disability uh, <laughs> retrieve. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that uh, we recently increased our support to free and fair elections by entering into a partnership with. Um, uh, a partner that's committed to that. And since that's a four-year agreement uh, where we actually score support, well, pretty much core support to the strategic plan of this partner, then they can support, uh, they can work based on an kind of electoral cycle approach rather than just pinpointing election mm. day. So that's another way, just coming back to my core argument about uh, as a funder, we should provide funds through aid modalities that are conducive for partners to think and work politically. Yeah, thank, thank you, Helena. That's a really important point to highlight um, and to emphasize. And if I may, I mean, you address some of the things that, that uh, were brought up by, by our four sets of speakers at the by our four speakers at the beginning. But um, could I just ask you, because I know that Sina has been working on sort of thinking about results quite differently. And I'm wondering, part of the pressures that we hear a lot about in terms of results is that there has to be upward accountability, not only to the donor, but to the to the taxpayer, H how does CEDA navigate um, these pressures so that you can enable a more open-ended um, thinking, more open-ended thinking about results? Hmm. A very good question. I think something was brought up by Nick, sort of the balancing act between, on the one hand, you're allowed to work in flexible ways. On the other hand, there are still expectations. Of course, we feel that, uh, I struggle a bit too, uh, that there are expectations to sort of deliver short-term results as if political processes could be fitted neatly into matrices or tangible stories. While as for those of us who work on political party development, we know that um, just the mere existence of a political party in a certain, say, repressive context is a major result. While as maybe the funder would see that, well, are they in parliament? Have their policies been adopted? Have their reforms changed the whole society? No, 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 no. We need to step back and see that just that that party being there, like maybe in one municip municipality in one corner of such a country is a major improvement. Um, but I think personally what you need to do that, of course we need to report to our, um, to, to the government uh, through certain channels like the annual report and such things. And that we need to do. Uh, 
sort of in a more formal way, but that shouldn't keep us away from telling more like compelling narratives about uh, change as it actually happens that maybe doesn't fit quite into uh, the expectations of us uh, on our formal uh, reporting. Um, I guess I'm out of time because I have yeah, no, things to say, but I'll, I can come back to that. Thank you very much, um, um, Helena. And on other, I think that the sort of the narrative around results echoes something also that uh, Nick and others were saying. So that's really mm. important. Let me now turn over to, to you, Laura. Obviously, um, USAID, again, is, is one of the giants in the field of democracy support. Um, and um, I also know from, from your own engagement with political economy analysis um, from uh, many, many years ago uh, going forward that um, USAID has really been um, trying to take politics much more um, centrally into account when thinking about the kind of work that it does. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what has changed um, uh, over the past five, five or 10 years in the field of, of democracy support to try to ground it more explicitly on contextual realities? Thanks, Alina, um, and thank you all for, for uh, inviting me to join this morning. I apologize, I'm getting over a cold, so um, my, my voice is a little hoarse than it would normally be. Um, I think just to, you know, right up front, be very blunt and to kind of echo Elena's points, you know, along the same lines, you know, I think the main, the main challenge that we've been, you know, confronting over the past 10 years or so has just been literally democracy assistance has gotten a lot harder and we've had to adapt. You know, as Helen has mentioned, we're, we're programming democracy assistance and an increasing amount of democracy assistance during what is now 15 straight years of, of global democratic decline. Mm -hmm. um, but I would highlight that, you know, this global decline at USAID has coincided with a number of policy shifts that have helped us to pivot our approaches. Um, and mm -hmm. so I wanted to just take a couple of minutes to talk about these shifts from the perspective of a, of a democracy rights and governance officer in the field, because that's really where I've spent most of my time at USAID. Um, looking back over the last several years, um, I think one of the major policy shifts that, that certainly we've seen having an impact in the field has been a shifting focus within USAID from a focus on democratic institutions to a focus on democratic principles. And Alina, as you, you and I have worked together for a long time on these sorts of issues, um, a major area of focus that has, you know, certainly been, you know, coming to the forefront of USAID, and I have a couple of colleagues who have been, you know, kind of uh, partners with me on this approach for many years, is really a focus on integrating democratic principles across our de development portfolio and recognizing the importance of democratic governance to the achievement and sustainability of objectives in other sectors. And so, you know, as USAID, you know, kind of came into really, you know, kind of leaning on a political economy analysis, it was in that framework that was offered to our colleagues in other sectors to help them thinking through the political and economic interests that shape the sectors and reforms in which they're engaged and enabling us to help them develop a more realistic understanding of what change is likely and what sorts of investments are likely to have a sustainable impact. But I wanted to flip that on its head a little bit, you know, kind of given what we're talking about today. And I think, you know, for me as a, as a democracy rights and governance officer, you know, closing space in so many of the contexts in which we're working has forced DRG officers to better understand and address the incentives and dynamics in the sectors in which we were engaging. And this is something that several of the panelists have talked about as well. We're, you know, as donors, we're also mired in the trap of endless rounds of training and years of support to democratic institutions, 
resulting in no perceptible change. Mm. And so I think that's really core to, you know, kind of a lot of the shifts in approach that I think have led to very different looking democracy programs, right? Many of us started using PEAs to inform our DRG work, which was leading us to rescope our own theories of change, the time horizons that we were looking to engage and the partners that we were engaging with. So in many of these contexts and these, you know, kind of more restrictive spaces, once you get into a deeper understanding of why things work the way that they do, the search for entry points, potential partners to reform, they lead you to diversify your programming, to combine demand and supply approaches, and to engage in many cases, some unusual but highly motivated suspects, right? And in doing that, often stretching you beyond the DRG sector. So for me, working on cross-sector, I came to find in the DRG space that, you know, working across sectors has also helped us to advance DRG outcomes when many of these institutions, these political institutions that we used to engage with were captured. So, and I'll come back to this, you know, when we, when we get through to, you know, kind of enabling factors, but I think this more political economy driven, locally led DRG outcome driven approach was taking shape in parallel with a lot of policy shifts. But all of these together created space for these new approaches that I've really been excited to see taking shape in USAID missions around the world for the past few years. And I think, a lot of this new programming, and Andres talked about a really great example of it, you know, is, is driven by deeper analysis of the context that's informed the identification of an array of partners with the incentives and the capacities to partner with us to take these reforms forward. I think this programming has recognized the importance of closely monitoring for opportunities, but also critically importantly, and again, echoing a lot of the other participants in this panel, having the flexibility to be able to move quickly to take advantage of openings and embedding those sorts of feedback loops, including through the use of local advisory councils to enable these pivots. And so these activities have really shifted from, you know, kind of a more technocratic focus on institutional strengthening to really identifying, you know, local points of resiliency within societies and ways to scale these up. Thank you so much for that, Laura. That's that's uh, uh, very thoughtful, and I also think it it, it sort of um, um, addresses some of the things that I wanted to ask you about responding to what you have heard from the from the different speakers. Um, I think one question that I would pose for you, and I know that you have been a trailblazer within um, USAID around the need to uh, use political economy analysis and to use that analysis to actually change uh, what is being done on the ground. And one of the main findings um, across uh, not only democracy support, but more generally international development efforts is that while donors have become much better at doing analysis, the translation of that analysis into changing what you're doing is much more challenging. So I'm wondering if you could sort of explain that a little bit, how, how you have been able to do that at USAID and is it something that is much more individual or sort of organizational? To be very honest, I think it's a work in progress. Um, I think that, you know, when you do make those investments in, in local analysis, um, it, does, it does point you in a very different direction and, and much more of a focus on, you know, kind of pinpointing, and, and I feel like several of the other discussants have talked about this as well, you know, kind of moving from a focus on institutions to a focus on identifying actors and groups that are most willing to engage in positive change. And so I think that, you know, the, you know, kind of the confluence of, you know, kind of the push within USAID to localize aid um, has in many ways made this work a little bit easier because it's given us a host of ways in which we can be engaging these groups and developing their networks, right? 
both by lowering barriers for direct awards, but also through processes like co-creation that enable us to kind of develop awards that are tailored to hone in on key aspects of local context and, and development programming that has been, you know, kind of specifically formulated to facilitate locally led change. I think, you know, one of the other, you know, kind of major shifts, and, and I've heard this coming through in the discussions as well, and I think this is really important in this space, um, has been, you know, kind of the move towards more, you know, kind of adaptive results-based contracting models that make space for all of us to be addressing these sorts of local systems and complexities and enabling us to continually to, to, to continually learn and adapt over the lifespan of our programs. So I think that there are, you know, kind of a combination of, of internal reforms and, you know, kind of responses to contexts that, uh, that ultimately have helped in, in pushing us in this direction. Thank you so much to you, Laura, and to everybody for um, sharing uh, with us all of these very thoughtful insights. Um, and I think there are a lot of uh, common messages that are emerging around trust building, um, engaging with informal um, power dynamics, uh, brokering spaces for, for collective action across uh, stakeholders that may not be um, uh, the usual suspects and all around aid modalities and how donors engage. Um, I wanted to open up the floor to some questions and I see that I have quite a few things. We may not perhaps attempt the, the sort of letting people um, um, articulate their own question, but if you don't mind my paraphrasing, I have um, some questions here that I wanted to raise for the panel. Um, there's someone, Michelle, Micheline, sorry, Oporia Equaro, who's asking, is there, are there examples of actions uh, on citizens demanding accountability to the different power structures, executive, legislative, judiciary, to strengthen democracy and democratic practices uh, and, and what has worked in that regard? We also have a question from Hamish Nixon, a former ODI colleague and now at Global Affairs Canada. Several speakers spoke about the appropriateness of certain interventions in certain political contexts, um, especially including single party systems. These echo the emerging political settlements approaches, um, talking about contested settlements uh, that may, may open up opportunities for checks and balances and dialogue, dominant ones that may be more suited for local or issues-based approaches. What do speakers think about the potential of a kind of mid-level political economy approach to democracy strategy? Um, Neil Gandhi from uh, FCDO, who was not able to uh, speak when, when uh, we tried that approach, uh, has his question here and he says, I wanted to ask how donors can help to change the incentives on democracy beyond the actions of certain stakeholders in democracy. For example, we can improve the engagement between politicians and citizens or civil society, but do we have innovative solutions on how to incentivize those politicians to engage citizens and civil society themselves? Um, I will, and then we had Jennifer uh, Jennifer Swift Morgan's question around what distinguishes formal versus informal dialogue. What 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 is a, is a setting different? Is a process different? Completely, what what's the difference? And then finally, uh, Sarah Swift from USAID. Could panelists reflect on how better uh, democratic governance goals within uh, uh, 
could, sorry, could panelists reflect on how to better incorporate democratic governance goals within other sector programming? How can donors and implementers better gauge when social sector, economic growth programming, et cetera, may buttress non-democratic regimes versus supporting ultimate change through healthier, better educated populations? Uh, that is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, questions right there, um, and I don't have a um, a preferred way of uh, engaging with the with the panelists. But if you raise your hand, perhaps in the panel, and let me know uh, who would like to start tackling some questions. I see now all of you. Okay, perfect. So, um, Helena, did you have your hand up as well, or did I imagine that? No. So I see Laura, I see Joseph, I see Nick. I see and, and Andre and I see Claire, yeah? So we'll do that in that order. Hopefully you'll remember what order I called you on. So <laughs> please come in. So just to respond very quickly on Sarah's question, I, I think that this is a huge challenge for all of us who are, you know, kind of working in, you know, kind of in democratic space and, and thinking about how, you know, kind of investments across, you know, kind of our, our donor agencies develop one portfolio, you know, kind of potentially reinforce autocratic regimes. I think the challenge is, is, is really, you know, kind of thinking about how we can embed, you know, kind of serious local analysis, you know, kind of at a strategic level across our agencies, right? Um, and thinking, you know, because frankly, you know, a lot of the work that we've done on political economy analysis to date within USAID has been highly demand-driven. Um, and, you know, frankly, you know, we've, we've had, you know, great uptake from, you know, health officers, from economic growth officers and from others that, you know, kind of are, are predisposed to thinking politically about their work. I, I don't want to discount the fact that this is not the case across the board. Um, and, you know, I think that ultimately this, this way of working, you know, I've, I've talked a little bit about, you know, kind of uptake and, you know, kind of the, um, uh, some of the really, you know, kind of interesting and innovative programming, but I, I, I don't want to say that that's, you know, kind of um, the, the always, you know, always the, the case in terms of how we respond to these challenges. I think that there's a tremendous amount of work um, that still needs to be done. And this is, you know, echoing a point that Andre made earlier about, you know, kind of um, thinking along longer time horizons, um, providing, you know, kind of more stable forms of funding, but also kind of enabling a whole of mission, you know, kind of whole of government approach to addressing these sorts of challenges. I think one of the things that I've been most excited to see, you know, kind of with the current administration in the United States has been a willingness to elevate these issues. I think it's really, you know, kind of incumbent upon all of us who are, you know, kind of committed to the, you know, kind of committed to the cause of democratic development, to be looking critically kind of across our structures and thinking about, you know, kind of how can we be embedding these larger discussions around how we're enabling um, and, you know, enabling uh, autocratic behavior or, you know, kind of conversely seeking to identify kind of across our development portfolios points of democratic resilience and seeking to strengthen them. But I don't know that we're there yet um, and I don't have you know, kind of great examples. I think the challenge with political economy analysis is that, you know, it, it can, you know, being able to go as deep as you want or as, as deep as you would like to be to be able to inform approaches, it's very difficult to do that at a countrywide level. Um, and so I think that we've got a lot of work to do in kind of thinking about how we can, you know, kind of make these analyses or develop the sorts of relationships that enable, you know, kind of development actors, you know, outsiders such as donors in a country to be able to have those sorts of advisory councils to understand the political dynamics well enough 
to shift their approaches across their portfolios to address these dynamics. Thank you, Laura. I think the journey is a destination and there is no solutions, but only ways to address problems, I suppose. Nick um, and then Joseph and then Andre and then Claire, thanks. Thanks, Alina. Let me address two questions. I see that that were probably triggered by what I was saying. So one was from Jennifer on what, what makes dialogue informal. Um, and there, I think the, like you say, it's really about um, the venue. So not being a formal uh, venue, it could be, we have in Tunisia, couscous politique, which are uh, yeah, hosted in, in cafes and around a, a meal. Um, and often participants do not necessarily participate as representatives of their party or, 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 or civic organization. And it makes it extremely useful for, for trust building. So there's no agenda, there's no expected end result or a, you know, a policy recommendation or a code of conduct that needs to be arrived at. It's really without an agenda, uh, without formal, formal roles and very much meant to, to, to generate uh, this trust that we've been uh, talking about. Um, so that's sort of how, how, how we look at it. The question on, uh, from Hamish on, on mid-level political economy analysis or approaches. I want to take that because I'm not quite sure what mid-level political economy approaches are, but I'd like to explain how in our programs we use a, a very light touch, almost regular political economy analysis lens on reviewing particular uh, um, projects progress. So this is a, almost something we do uh, before a new planning year starts and also after uh, annual results uh, have become visible and, and our own teams uh, follow a set of questions around what are pressure points, what are challenges, who's winning, who's losing uh, in the current context. Um, and then based on that, we look at what we call actor-based uh, pathways of change and see whether we need to make adjustments um, um, uh, in our programs around these pathways of change. So it's very light, I would say. It's not trying to you know, do formal studies um, um, at, the, at the national level, but very much focused on what is our program trying to change in a certain country and what are the political economy challenges around realizing those changes. Um, and that really helps, uh, yeah, much more modestly uh, look at the politics, how it affects your program. And then without big reports or big workshops, quickly make some decisions on what to do differently in the next year. Thank you. Yeah, that's very useful. And actually, um, lots of donors are thinking about how to do, um, or international development actors are thinking about how to do a more streamlined type of analysis uh, on a more regular basis. Uh, Joseph, over to you. Yes, thank you. Once again, I think that uh, uh, to answer the question about incentives uh, for democracy, I think it is important that we continue to humanize uh, democracy support work uh, on top of the, the data, the reports that we present in rooms to begin putting faces of people uh, to not, so that the, the debate is about inclusion and the rights of people. But it's also important, and, and I was glad to hear this from uh, USAID, it's important that we uh, do not tie local programming to rigid international log frames donors can easily uh, handicap uh, democracy support. And therefore, uh, funding modalities are really critical for the success of uh, democracy support. It is important that we are not too descriptive at, at the international regional level, but allow and support directly homegrown mechanisms so that the citizen agency 
is actually seen as the, 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 the engine for democracy itself. And then uh, on the question on uh, incorporating DRG in other sectors, I think it is important, uh, if I can use Uganda's example, to realize that uh, we need to invest a bit more in mindset change as a people. We may have to accept that, for example, we have lost a particular generation as a country when it comes to uh, democracy or thinking democratic values, and therefore start investing in the mindset change for younger people, especially in schools. We realize, for example, in Uganda, that it is now the commercialization of politics or political competition is now going into our secondary schools and primary schools. And if we do not address that issue at that level, it will be very difficult to address commercialization of politics when young people who have been paying to be elected as class monitors or, or prefects in school are now running for you know, councils and, and, and members of parliament. So incorporating uh, democracy leaning conversations in civic education and in school curriculums and creating debates within institutions of, of, of education is going to be important if we are targeting the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joseph. Sorry, I lost track of the mic there for a second. Um, can I turn to Andre, please? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, I wanted to say that I think the uh, most legitimate, uh, the most organic, and also at the same time, the safest way of uh, designing democracy interventions uh, is focusing on the end user, on the voter, on the citizen. And I think, you know, if, though, if, the, uh, if the program enables the citizen and gives them the opportunity to hold the politicians accountable and, you know, to, to demand transparency, to, to ask for specific concrete um, changes, uh, I think that that is uh, a very important goal, and uh, it's it's very difficult at the same time to to do that because I think that means you know uh, you know a, a practical sense uh, of uh, uh, living democracy of uh, you know basically something that becomes culture, and I think that's something is the most difficult thing you know because cultures mm -hmm. don't change overnight, cultures don't change. Um, you know, even in a generation sometimes. And sometimes, you know, I have to talk to my parents, my grandparents and, and explain things. And, you know, even, even then things are not, not the same. And, you know, it takes time. It takes, you know, endless, uh, I think, um, practical examinations of, uh, uh, of, you know, real, you know, bread and butter issues. And I think those real bread and butter issues, once addressed from a democratic, in a democratic way uh, by citizens saying, you know, we want this, we understand the budget is this, we want to contribute, you know, we understand things are, are you know, this is the, the practice of how things happen. I think that is the, the change that needs to happen. And um, yes, it is, uh, I think, you know, it's very difficult to evaluate and to measure uh, impact of democratic interventions. You know, we know that in, in the industry, it's extremely um, challenging. Uh, I think at the same time, you know, if people, learn how to identify their priorities you know if they can create articulate what they want uh signal what they want and also then get the politicians to act on that i think that is the you know a very simple uh kind of system of metrics uh and uh that you know when when the citizens demand accountability and accountability is 
you know, given or uh, enacted. I think that is when we come to this uh, uh, state of, you know, better um, uh, system where, um, you know, people have, you know, more people participate, but also people are not afraid to criticize and people are not afraid to be, you know, also would expect an answer. And the answer doesn't always have to be, yes, we'll do what you want, but, you know, Sometimes it's it's about, and this is what we face at very often. Sometimes it's about explaining why things are not happening, but also engaging people in, in dialogue. And I think this is, uh, it's very simple. And it means talking to a lot of uh, residents. And I think this is the challenge of approaches that uh, I am kind of advocating and we are advocating in Moldova. Uh, and it is, you know, very time uh, consuming. And it means finding those champions, somebody mentioned before, you know, finding those champions who have the ear of the public and who can be the intermediaries to a wider to a wider scale. Yeah, we are working with 126 mayors now, but that means you know probably 500,000 uh, contacts that the and you know inter interactions that those mayors are having with the local residents. And once the residents understand that this is how politics and democracy works, they expect the same from from other levels of government. And I think this is a very legitimate, very organic, and very safe way of uh, of. Uh, kind of helping the process along. Thank you very much, Andrea. I mean, there's a catalyzing effect there. You, you see how it's working and others then. Okay, uh, Claire, let me turn to you. Yeah, thanks. No, I just wanted to take the question about how best to incorporate democratic goals across other sectors. Um, because I think that, you know, this is something that my work has touched on a lot in terms of the way in which working other sectors can strengthen um, voice and mobilization and the ability of certain groups to participate and to make political demands. I mean, I've worked a lot in, in, in post-conflict contexts. And when I, you know, I think about some of the post-conflict reform processes that I've been involved with, you know, we think things like land reform, legal reform, justice reform, and so on can be really good opportunities um, to provide sort of to empower marginalized groups whether that's women whether that's certain ethnic groups um, caste groups and so on to to be able to to mobilize and to access political space in ways that they haven't been before so I think what we need is more analysis about the interconnections between those different types of processes and the way in which support within one can result in progress within another and then in terms of, I mean of more restrictive context it can be, and again, I've seen this in some in some cases, mobilizing around, for example, service provision, health and so on, can in some cases be the only space or one of the few spaces where there is possibility for citizens to come together mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of make demands and effectively act as a group. And so those can be important points where space is very restricted for some kind of mobilization, some kind of, of, of kind of growing of political voice. So I just wanted to, to kind of stress that I think there are interconnections that we need to explore more and comes back to kind of the point about the need for really good analysis, which kind of moves beyond silos and looks at the ways in which different types of, of kind of mobilization empowerment relate to each other. Thank you very much, Claire, for that. Um, I want to turn to Tom Carothers now, who has been waiting very patiently to take the microphone. And um, before I do that, though, I want to recognize a question that has come up on the on the chat that I think is really important because it's uh, we need to recognize that this decline in democracy and democratic malaise is not the remit only of so-called um, the, the developing world, but also very much the remit of, of, of uh, um, some of the most established democracies in the world, including the US. So one question was, how does that um, affect the ability of 
of, of donors who are known to be established democracies, how does that affect their ability to then uh, support democracy? But I will just leave that as a question mark. And now over to Tom, thank you. Thank you very much, Alina. I've been asked to try to summarize this discussion and provide a bit of perspective on it. Let me see if I can do that. This is a panel on politically smart assistance for democracy. Let's remind ourselves, what's the difference between politically not smart assistance and politically smart assistance? Seems like an obvious thing. Politically not smart assistance, which the organizers have used the term, it's technically oriented. Let's just get clear what's not smart about it. Politically not smart assistance is assistance which assumes a very simplistic theory of change in which the assumption is that providing knowledge to political actors will be enough to change their behavior in ways that will overcome significant democratic deficits. You have some judges in a Central American country who are uh, part of a judiciary that doesn't function well, so you train them. You provide them knowledge and you hope they'll act differently, be less corrupt, more fair, et cetera. Or it means providing resources to an institution. Electoral commission's not functioning well, give it some more money. So it has nicer headquarters, better vehicles, et cetera. So a simplistic theory of change based on either the provision of knowledge or the provision of financial resources. What is politically smart assistance? Politically smart assistance is assistance which assumes that those two theories of change are not adequate and looks for a theory of change for democratization focused on two things, both the obstacles to change and the potential agents of change. The obstacles being both structures and actors who are working against democracy in that country. Agents of change, again, might be structural changes or actors who work on behalf of that. <clears throat> Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Um, but it turns out to be a rather long road. I don't mean to sound like father time here, but 23 years ago, I published a book, I happen to have a copy right here, called Aiding Democracy Abroad, The Learning Curve. I wanna read one paragraph in that book and I ask for your indulgence on this. It's a slightly long paragraph, but hear what I say and think about it in relation to what we've been talking about. Despite tentative progress, the enormity of the challenge is daunting. In most democratizing countries, Political pluralism has done little to stimulate institutional reform. Many state institutions in democratizing countries remain repositories of corruption, inefficiency, and fecklessness. Citizens' disdain for the public sector is high. The shortcomings of judiciaries, legislatures, police, local governments, and other institutions usually dwarf the aid programs that address them. Resistance to reform is persistent and widespread. Citizen-led efforts to create pressure for institutional change are gradually multiplying, but are usually very weak. The realization that institutional reform requires deeper changes, going from not smart to smart, down among the infrastructures and power relationships is a necessary insight, yet also one that underscores how slow and difficult such change will be 23 years ago. So why has the road been so long? I think there are three reasons. I think we should think hard about this. Here are three reasons why it's hard to be politically smart. And I think we've mostly talked about the middle of the three reasons I will present rather than the other two um, for understandable reasons, as I'll mention. The first reason why it's hard to be politically smart is 
We don't really know. If I get a group of Egypt experts together and say, what will it take to make Egypt become democratic? It's gonna be a long and difficult discussion on which there's not gonna be much agreement. What is it gonna take once and for all for Myanmar to become democratic? Our knowledge about what it takes given the context that Helena presented of an autocratizing world, what it's really gonna take for democratization to happen turns out to be much, much, much harder than the transitologists of the 1980s and 90s who had very simplistic theories of change thought. We don't have a theory of change for Egypt right now. We don't have a theory of change for Myanmar. Do we have a theory of change for many of the countries in which we work? So first of all, the problem of knowledge remains fundamental. The second reason why it's hard to be politically smart is it requires us to act differently and act, and this is where what we've been talking about, I was just jotting down some of the things the good panelists were saying. It requires us to be much more labor intensive in our work. It requires working with a much wider range of actors, often difficult and uncomfortable actors who may not be nice and friendly uh, type actors, but may be difficult. It requires different kinds of action, getting at structures. The problem in the Central American judiciary is the judges are paid very little and so very vulnerable to corruption. Well, how could you work on raising pay in that judiciary? A different challenge than providing knowledge. It may require working with citizens, but as civil society goes from formal to informal and from advocacy to popular mobilization, it requires aid providers to work with popular mobilization, which is a difficult and uncomfortable thing for aid providers to do, although certainly not impossible. It requires working cross-sectorally. Uh, uh, as Claire was saying, it requires a whole series of things that challenge the basic way that aid organizations operate. And we've only really put this list together in recent years and said, my goodness, being politically smart requires different kinds of aid organizations or ones that operate in ways that go against many of their instincts and traditions. But let me finish with the third reason why it's hard to be politically smart, which is becoming the most difficult reason and one surprisingly we haven't really talked about. The smarter you are politically, the more intentional you are, and in an autocratizing the world, the more sensitive and challenging your work is to power holders and the more often you're gonna be pushed back. Think of our word change agent. Sounds like such a good thing. Oh, look, there goes a change agent over there. Mm -hmm. In many countries, a change agent is a troublemaker, a political opponent, or a terrorist <clears throat> in, in the view of power holders. Change agents are people who are threatening the hold on power of powerful, illiberal actors who are autocratizing a majority of countries in the world. And so being politically smart, being very politically intentional in a world where other people, illiberal, liberal, uh, illiberal leaders uh, have a different kind of intentionality. And so the two intentionalities are clashing against each other. That started happening in the mid 2000s when President Putin passed an NGO law saying, these change agents, these NGOs, I view them as enemies of the state and I'm gonna pass a law to start regulating them. And ever since then, we've been on a road in which being politically smart uh, is necessary, yet is much more politically sensitive than it ever was before. So why is it hard to be politically smart? Why 23 years later are we still on this necessary road? Because the knowledge is hard to have. It requires very different ways of operating from the way the aid business was set up. 
and it requires being intentional and in, in a sense, oppositional to other actors, yet we also want to be, as Nick was saying, impartial in some way. And being intentional and impartial in an autocratizing world is very difficult. So Alina, I'm glad you convened this event. It's the topic of the day. We're gonna take the challenge supporting democracy in this difficult world seriously. But let's recognize the length and complexity of this road, but at least we're on a path might take us somewhere. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. That is an amazing um, synthesis and reflection. And I don't know if you just prepared that right this second or, or you had some more time to think about it, but it is uh, really, really um, um, cogent and um, really pushes us to think a, a lot more about what it means to take this challenge to task about how to support democracies uh, in ways that are politically more informed along the knowledge uh, that you have talked about, the different ways of working and this pushback, which is very real. Um, so thank you very much for that. Uh, perhaps what I would like to do now um, by way of closing this, this panel discussion is to go around the, the Zoom room, if you, if you will, with our panelists and ask each of you in one minute to please share one top takeaway or implication or recommendation um, that you think um, has come across to you or has, uh, or, or has been crystallized by the discussion today um, that, that you want to share with, uh, with the rest of us. So uh, jo I will do this very quickly because we don't have a lot of time, but Joseph, can I turn over to you to do that? And then we'll proceed with the others. Thank you very much, Alina. And for me, it's been uh, really three uh, main points that it is very, very, very critical for us to, to establish relations that lead to trust in order to have impact with those that we work with. Change can only come from within. And therefore, we need to work with champions who are individually invested uh, in this uh, change or reform that that we seek. Secondly, it is that we must be inclusive, both in the way we design our interventions and in the way we deliver them. And third is that there has to be flexibility and understanding between the donor and the INGOs uh, that will work in the democracy support space. And therefore, it is important that we recognize that the, the donors have to feed some power in the design and implementation of these programs, have to be flexible in the way we work on rock frames and funding. And at the same time, INGOs have to also recognize the need to seed power to local initiatives for homegrown initiatives for democracy support. I thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Um, Nick, I will put you on a diet though, just one point. <laughs> That's okay, Alina. I only had one point, and it was really triggered by, by Tom's third point on, on why we're not progressing, and has to do with uh, uh, the work being uh, uh, oppositionist or, or very difficult or, or uh, dangerous even. And, and I want to point to attention with the localization agenda, which certainly in the Netherlands is, is becoming quite strong, and which puts me as a sort of global The Hague officer in a difficult position, because I would like us to be more oppositionist in Myanmar, uh, not working out of a Bangkok office and trying online trainings. Uh, I would like us to be more oppositionist in Uganda by being much more 
uh, including uh, new parties in our uh, dialogue platforms. But my colleagues who run the programs in these countries, they're, they're in a dangerous position. They have interests, uh, they have family members, and they may not actually uh, want to go that road themselves or would hesitate from doing really uh, incisive political economy analysis around new projects adaptations because it threatens them and, and their personal lives. And this is something I'm more and more uh, uncomfortable with uh, working in a, in a headquarters in a, in a global north, which is something I think we, yeah, we also need to pay more attention to. But thanks for this interesting. Thank you, Nick, very thoughtful about localization. Claire? Yeah, no, I wanted to make just a couple of points really kind of more on the organizational level in terms of, of what can be done to strengthen organizations' abilities to, to work in these ways. And I think I want to reiterate a point that was made earlier about the fact that there can be really strong internal resistance to these ways of working. And what we need to do is to kind of anticipate, manage that resistance and to build sort of powerful stories about ways in which this type of work have contributed to change. And I think the other thing that we need to think about in terms of at organizational level is really kind of building the capacity and, and empowering staff and giving them space at country level to work in these ways, because a lot of the knowledge sharing about this type of working is going on between experts in headquarters and taking and the kind of learning is taking place away from those people working on the ground. So I just wanted to kind of to give a call for for, for strengthening the kind of capacity and, and evidence building and, and engagement with staff on the ground around these ways of working within our organizations. Thank you very much, Claire, for that. Andrei? Thank you. Speaking of on the ground, I'm of course on the ground and <laughs> in the global south, uh, but in a country that uh, you know, wants to be uh, you know, democratic and is uh, aspirational. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's important and I think, you know, uh, in our experience, taking this kind of human-centered uh, design approach uh, with, with a, you know, yes, analysis involved, but with a minimal viable product and with iterations that adapt, that are flexible, that, you know, look at the uh, situation on the ground, that are working with the partners is, is the best approach. And I think, you know, not being, and this is controversial, you know, not being afraid to fail I think is extremely important. And I've heard that from, uh, from donors uh, at the highest level, but I think also this is not yet the practice uh, everywhere in the you know, donor community and also in the implementers community. And you know, not being af afraid to fail is something that you know, makes us learn. And I think you know, we need to learn. This is a dynamic process. You know, by iterations, we learn, and also by failing, we learn. And you know, uh, the final point is that the resources here are people and time. And I think this is mm -hmm. something that we need to keep in mind that you know, time is something that will, uh, uh, you know, we want to accelerate the time, but we need people uh, in order to do that. And you know, local people are, are key to that. And thank you for the opportunity to speak here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andre. Um, Helena. Um, thank you. I'm starting my timer. Um, two points. Uh, the first one, I think there's scope for uh, better division of labor between, say, government donor agencies and philanthropists, because there are certain things we can fund. We can be very long term. Maybe they can't, but they can, say, contribute to partners building up their own reserves and they can support informal groups that are not registered properly or not yet, which we can't. Uh, and that could really enhance the resilience uh, of these groups to be daring to work and think politically. The second point is that uh, if you're in this business, you tend to be very keen on 
the intrinsic argument, democracy is good because it's good. Uh, and of course, we <laughs> believe that. But I think we also need to dare move into it has instrumental values. So that what, what democracy is so what? I think about Andres mayors that will encounter that challenge sort of on the ground, that they need to deliver something. And actually, there is evidence that shows that democracies do deliver better than autocracies. And I think we should be more daring in sort of telling that narrative because the other side is so effective in sharing their message. So I'd like for us to be maybe less defensive and more outspoken, of course, without putting partners, local partners at risk. That's essential, but thank you. Uh, good point there on the, on the narratives. Uh, thank you, Helena. Laura? Sure, just to just to pick up and, and maybe weave together a couple of the points that both Helena and Nick have raised. I, I'm I'm also having difficulty dropping Tom's last point um, about you know kind of the, the challenge of of intentionality and impartiality. I think that's something that we're all contending with. But I think for for a lot of us who have been you know kind of engaged in this sort of programming, just to circle back on a point that Helena's just made that I think is really important, is that it's incumbent upon all of us that are, you know, kind of really committed to these ways of working to, you know, kind of move these sorts of, you know, kind of analyses and approaches, you know, kind of out of the realm of, of political sensitivity and coming up with ways of, of making this analysis and these ways of working more accessible across sectors, you know, kind of across, across donor communities. I think Helena's just made this critical point of, you know, kind of what is our division of labor in these sorts of spaces? And, you know, kind of how much can we lean into, you know, kind of being much more open about talking about the challenges that we're up against and how we deal with them. Um, feeding this for, for me as a, you know, kind of as a, as a member of a, you know, kind of a U.S. government post, right? How am I feeding this forward in terms of our diplomatic engagement in these spaces where we have really leaned in on supporting these change agents and are going to need political cover to be able to, you know, kind of continue to work in these politically informed ways. So I think taking this analysis out of the realm of the sensitive or something that gets put on a shelf into really, you know, kind of embedding this into the ways that we act, you know, kind of across our agencies and, and, and across, the, across the donor community to take these, take these approaches forward. Thank you so much, uh, Laura. And I want to uh, thank all of our panelists for, uh, for being here with us today and also our audience for um, engaging so thoroughly. I am left really struck with what Tom was reading from 23 years ago. And it seems like we're still in that almost revolution. So I don't know what happens when you're still in almost revolutions, but it seems to me that it's very clear that this is not a sprint or even a marathon. Uh, it's more like an Iron Man or Iron Woman. So I don't know if any of you have had the pleasure of doing one of those, but it's it's exhausting and uh, uh, very tiring. Um, but but that the struggle continues, I suppose. Um, and I also want to thank very much uh, Catherine and Megan and David uh, from from the ODI and Thinking Working Politically teams for all of the help in uh, um, making this event possible today. Um, and uh, hopefully uh, we can continue this conversation. And we now have this new challenge about. Uh, how we counter pushback that Tom has put in the on the radar for us. Thank you so so much for everything. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks all. Bye bye.